We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Shh. If you listen carefully, you can hear the federal government trying to find a new leader. Hey, 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 Here's hey, hey. Scott Thompson. Yeah, cheeky boy. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what's going on? Uh, the latest numbers out of Nano's. Uh, the Conservatives are up four points at 38%. The Liberals are down six points at 27. The NDP up three at 21. So now six points separating the Liberals and the NDP. And uh, an NDP win in the Manitoba provincial election uh, with the first Indigenous uh, Premier being elected to Manitoba in Canadian history. The NDP get that uh, nod. And you got to wonder if... Uh, uh, with just the the steady dive bombing of the Liberal Party, if uh, the, you're going to see a lot of resurgence with the NDP and um, maybe even federally, if Jagmeet Singh decides to stop complaining and uh, actually do something. It's funny to listen to the man complain because it's like, well, if anybody can do anything, it's you. You made the deal. You made the deal to keep the guy. So, meeting the prime minister. So, uh, it's kind of funny watching that, but you got to wonder at what point do the NDP say, we've had enough of this. We're going to the loan and, uh, you are a drag on the whole thing. All right. But again, as I mentioned, history being made in Manitoba when, uh, they elect the first indigenous premier. Here is a report from the Canadian press on that. The New Democrats have brought an end to seven years of progressive conservative rule. Leader Wab Canoe says his party ran a positive campaign. We chose to believe that given the choice, you, the people of Manitoba, would embrace a positive campaign focused on the future. Canoe will become the first First Nations Premier of a province. In defeat, Tory leader Heather Stephenson and Liberal leader Dougal Lamont say they will step down. Steve Lambert, the Canadian Press, Winnipeg. Uh, the Liberals down to one seat in Manitoba. Uh, and again, I mean, the B.C. Liberal Party changed the name, took the name Liberal out. So you have to wonder if hanging on with the Prime Minister is not just uh, rippling right the way across the country. All right. Uh, obviously, history being made uh, last night with this. And here's some comments from uh, a Manitoba, uh, a former uh, Manitoba NDP Cabinet Minister Eric Robinson, how historic an event this is. I think that for First Nations people and Indigenous people in general across Canada should feel proud of uh, Manitoba because uh, we've uh, demonstrated that through perseverance and uh, through some hard work and some participation in the mainstream of Canadian politics, if you will, has, uh, has really you know, paid off in a big way here. So I have a lot of confidence that uh, Wob will use that and uh, the things that he has taught his children uh, as he moves into the future. And he is uh, a very uh, good person, and I, uh, I'm really very proud of what he has done. And here is Wab Canoe, the new premier of Manitoba. I've been asked to serve as premier. I don't know how much more uh, weight you could uh, put on somebody. I mean... This is the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. And the real work hasn't even begun yet. 
And on uh, many asking, how did you do this? Uh, what was the, your, the key to winning? And he said, healthcare. We need you. We need you working at the front lines so that we can build new emergency rooms to serve the people of this province. We need you at the front lines so we can stand up a new cancer care facility to give the best quality treatment to people right here in Manitoba. All right, that's the uh, new premier of Manitoba, uh, Wab Canoe, who is the first Indigenous premier in uh, Canada. And you think about that, and then the first black speaker yesterday, quite a historic week for uh, Canada. So uh, fascinating time. It's going to be great to see where uh, all of this goes and, of course, uh, uh, how uh, they obtain success, attain success moving forward. But congratulations to both. All right. As you know, through the pandemic, and we still do, uh, try to use uh, this hour as much as we can to cater and turn the spotlight on small businesses and things that are going on in the area. And I'm at a function, a friend's function over the weekend, and I met Francis uh, DeBartolomeo. And Francis is the owner of Genuine Bakery and Catering at 1002 Barton Street East in the Hammer. And he starts telling me a story about this great family business. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's tell everybody. So Francis, owner of Genuine Bakery and Catering at 1002 Barton Street East in Hamilton, is with us now. Francis, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Scotty, how are you, sir? So far, so good. So what are you baking today, Francis? Uh, a little everything, sir. Today we got uh, we got our regular buns coming out of the oven, but uh, it's Thanksgiving Day weekend, so the oven's full of turkeys right now. All right. So, Oh, so what do you got going for Thanksgiving? Uh, we got a nice special going actually unfortunately we cut off the special today but it's uh it's turkey stuffing mashed potatoes squash corn garden salad it comes with rolls and butter with gravy and cranberry sauce oh man how many of those go out the door uh, quite a few quite a few <laughs> all right so give us some history francis i was speaking with you over the weekend and i love listening to these stories about family businesses that have started and just continued on so give us a bit of history for genuine bakery yeah so we've, we've been here for uh, over 60 years now it started in 1961 with my father's uh, my father's uncle, so my great uncle Gino was his name. Uh, passed down to my father, and now my brother and I we've had it ourselves for the last 13 years. So, how does this? How has this ba- uh, business changed over the years? What's the difference now for what you're doing, and maybe what your father and your uncle were doing at one point? Well, uh, it started originally as a wholesale bread bakery. Uh, we were just like the milkman, delivering bread door to door. As time went on, you know the grocery stores came into play and then uh it it evolved from there with the last i'd say 10 years or so the switch has gone from more bread to the food side of things so we're a full-blown catering company now um any any event small or large as uh as anyone desires we can do as much or as little as they want and uh we still have the wholesale bread side going we deliver all the sub shops in the city like master university uh a bunch of local restaurants um how do you how Francis, how do you compete with the big boys? How do you compete when, you know, all of a sudden the grocery stores start doing, you know, stuff that you guys would have been doing or specialty stuff or whatever? I mean, you really have to pivot. Yeah, I mean, uh, the fortunate part with us is uh, we've been around for so long. We're actually a two-level two plant. So we mix upstairs and we're fully automated. Everything comes from the second floor down, uh, which allows us to compete, you know, a little bit with the big guys. And uh, we can produce on a different level. Um we're the only one of the only bakeries left that delivers seven days a week. So, uh, you know, that that's always been an advantage to us. Most post pan 
Post pandemic, have you seen more? Post pandemic, Francis, have you seen more emphasis on buying local? More people interested in something like this that's been around for a few generations? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, everybody seems to be a lot more Hamilton proud these days, and uh, there's a lot of local businesses that have popped up. Little, a lot of mom and pop shops that are are trying to stay local. Um, you know, Barton Lettuce being one of them is one of our big customers down on Barton Street. They um, they they only support local. So their produce comes from the local farm market, bread comes from us, meat plants out of Highland Packers and, and uh, the Springer's Meats here in Hamilton as well. Um, so there's a lot of few shops like that, but everybody seems to be supporting local, which is great to see for the city, right? A lot of pride in the city, isn't there, Francis? Big time, big time. Where do you see the future of Genuine Bakery going? I mean, uh, obviously, you've taken it in a bit different direction than your father and your uncle. Where does it go from here? Where do you see it? How do you, how do you keep going? Honestly, you know, I, I think uh, we just stick to the course. Uh, business keeps, keeps evolving as time goes on. We try to, try to do as much for the people as, as the people want, right? We kind of take our cue off of what people are, are looking for, what they want, um, and, and we just try to accommodate. We've been around for so long that uh, we're not going anywhere. Same location for 60 years. You know, obviously, it'd be nice to pop up another location somewhere. But uh, in the meantime, we're doing what we have to do where we are. And, and we love it. We love it. So, we very, we so at 10, at 10.02 Barton Street East, it's obviously the home of the bakery uh, and stuff. But you've got a store there and can buy other things in, 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 as well as, as ready-made stuff. Is that accurate? For sure. Absolutely. Full hot table, full deli, sandwich bar. Um, and then any pre-orders too, we take people can come pick up from here or we deliver to your house, whatever the, whatever you guys need, we'll do for you. All right. What's your favorite part about being a part of all of this, uh, in this tradition for so long, Francis? Oh, my favorite part. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot, Scott. I, uh, I, that's my I, job, you know, Francis. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, honestly, I take pride in, 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 just the fact that we've been around. It's the same family name. The Barcelona Mail family has been here. For the last, you know, over 60 years, and uh, it's something special to say that I could be, you know, I'm still here. I get customers coming in that say, you know, your grandmother cooked for my wedding, or uh, wow. you know, your father did my stag 20 years ago, and uh, it's, it's it's nice to see, it's nice to see the older generation coming in and still supporting, and uh, and yeah, it's just, I would say that would be my favorite part. All right, how do we find you? Website? Are you on the web? Are you have you got yeah, much online Facebook, presence? Instagram, uh, genuinebakery.com. Uh, yeah, or give us a call anytime, 905-545-3027. We're here. All right, Francis DeBartolomeo with us, owner of Genuine Bakery and Catering, 1002 Barton Street East in the Hammer, a traditional Hamilton bakery that has uh, been going for uh, generations and continues to serve the great city as it's changing. Francis, thanks for the time. Good luck. Scotty, thank you, sir. Take care. Poll question of the day on X, if you want to jump in, uh, is uh, what do we do about red light cameras? Uh, people are proposing, sorry, not red light cameras, stopping on a red light. Should Hamilton ban right turns on a red light at all intersections in the city? A handful of uh, North American cities have done this. I believe it's also the law in Quebec. However, uh, for the most part, uh, you're allowed to make a right turn on a red light, but... Um, you gotta, you gotta come to a stop first. And if people are blowing the light, whether you have, uh, make the right turn or not, you're supposed to stop. Now, knowing that you can't do that, will that make you just stop? Um, I- I'm not sure. Let's bring in, uh, Angelo DeChico, special project manager with the Ontario Safety League and here now. Angelo, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Hey, Scott, I'm alive and well, and hopefully everyone out listening is too. All right, Angelo. So I guess the reason for this is primarily to stop pedestrian accidents or, or uh, certainly uh, yeah. slow that down yeah. a bit. This has to do with people yeah. stopping and then pedestrians crossing the road. Is that accurate? Well, yes. And I, the, the law allowing you to make a right-hand turn on a red light was fundamentally sound when people actually came to a complete stop before the white line. So the hmm. front of your vehicle should be stopped before the white line. That's why they painted it there. That yep. allowed pedestrians to cross safely. And it also gave you a chance to scan left, center, right. But now you have to also do a quick right blind spot check to make sure there's not an e-bike coming up at 20 or 30 kilometers an hour yeah. before you make that right turn on a red light. And then what happened is many drivers just slowed down, looks left, center, right, then kept going. Mm. And now many a driver barely slows down and they're yeah. thinking it's their prerogative. It's their right to make a right on a red. And the reality is, no, it ain't. That's an interesting point, too, Angelo, is you're supposed to stop first and then make the turn. So if people are blowing the light, would it matter or... Um, you know, just having the, the blanket law where, no, that's not allowed. So if it's red, it's red. You stop no matter what. Because then what you're trying to do is to re-educate the public who got their yeah. license last year or five years or 25 or 35 years ago. That the reality is that only one vehicle, one person has the right of way. You're not supposed to take the right of way from another road user. You mm. can, if you want, give up the right of way. But when you're making a right-hand turn on a red, you don't have the right of way. It could be the vehicle opposite you has a left turn signal, and they get to continue without stopping. You have to stop behind the white line, then make a right on a red and turn into the lane closest to you, while the vehicle opposite to you theoretically could be making a left turn with a green arrow into the mm. closest lane. But if you make a wide right turn because you haven't stopped or slowed down enough, or the vehicle opposite you is making a wide left turn, there's going to be a problem. And now you put in cyclists coming at 20 or 30 kilometers an hour on mm. your right-hand side, or pedestrians who are crossing the intersection either with the walk or don't walk signal, it gets to be a mess. But if you're making a right-hand turn on a red, it's red. Red means, um, um, oh, stop. That <laughs> doesn't mean slow down, look, and go. You know, that is a very interesting point, Angelo. So rather than changing laws, which could be inconsistent depending on where you go, mm -hmm. uh, do we need perhaps an education ca campaign sure. on how to make a right turn on a red successfully refresh and what you just said and, and what you're supposed memory. to do? Refresh people's memory. Hmm. Red means stop. Okay, I have to stop. <laughs> then where do I need to stop? Well, if they painted a big fat white line, <laughs> probably there. If there is no big fat white line, then the skinny white line or the prolongation from curb line to curb line if there is no sidewalk. The reason we have sidewalks is you should be expecting a pedestrian. That's mm -hmm. on you, the driver. The reason we, we, we have to stop making right turns on reds is because now we have to have signs saying yield 
to pedestrians and turning traffic. And the reason you have to put those up is because some people forgot that you have to stop for before making a right turn on a red. I mean, now in Markham, there was a big hoopla because they banned right-hand turns on red lights several months ago, and then they started to enforce it. And then what happened was people, there was such an outcry that people got now to be able to make a right-hand turn when it wasn't prohibited. So they've put extra signs up saying no right-hand turn on a red from Monday to Friday from 9 to 5. Now you have to do math and look at the calculator (laughs) in your watch. Oh, man. So it's getting a little out of hand. So uh, obviously, Angelo, education is is, is and let me put w- words in your mouth. Is what you're saying ed- education, education the best the, the best uh, remedy here rather than changing the law? Pick a law that you like, put it in the Highway Traffic Act, and let's enforce it. And then make sure people know, right? So if we get rid of them all, then let's make sure we get rid of them all, and you tell everyone. If mm-hmm. you don't want to spend the money on the new signage and educate, then go back to right-hand turns on a red, but you have to stop because it's red. And, you know, you bring up another uh, valid point, Angelo, just because of now the difference in the mixture of traffic, whether it's cyclists, this, that, or the other, um, maybe it's time for that kind of campaign that, uh, you know, to re-educate. Driving on the road is a lot different now than it was 20 years ago. I mean, mean, you do a right-hand blind spot check for a pedestrian, there's probably no one there because you would have saw them as you approach the light. If you made a complete right a stop at the correct place, yeah. you do a right-hand blind spot check, and there might be a cyclist on the sidewalk or on the on the bicycle lane coming up at twenty kilometers an hour. You got to be, you know, more much more aware of that. Or I saw someone on a little Segway unicycle. It looked so cool. I, yeah. I was like thirty years younger. I'd do it myself. But that that thing's motoring so. It's incumbent upon the person who has a red light to understand that they don't have the right of way because the light is red. Then you have to look to see who does have the right of way. Well, it's probably the pedestrian or the cyclist. What, we have to put a sign there to remind you that they have the right of way and you don't? So, yeah, it's all going to come down to education. Uh, I remember a long time ago, the, I, as a kid, they were doing uh, uh, they were doing advertising for snow plows because people yeah. I don't know were hitting snow plows or whatever, and it's like the flashing blue light and da 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 da, and 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 obviously it worked, and now you see snow plow convoys and whatever. It's like everybody kind of knows what to do. Y- you got to wonder again if it's it, why we're not doing that now, considering how things have changed. It, you make a good point. Shall we vote for you next? All right, so uh, Quebec doesn't have this. Quebec ha- makes well, no mostly, yeah, and and in the in the island of Montreal, more likely. So every every place is coming across places that didn't have it, then started to allow it. Ontario looked at uh, banning them, and then in the in the seventies, it was encouraged because you didn't uh, during the fuel crisis, you didn't want people having to right. a complete right. stop and then holding up traffic. It could go either way, ban them, keep them, but you have to educate. Now, engineers are getting smarter, and with higher degrees of money being spent on infrastructure, you could have a right turn lane, 
And that's much better marked out. And there's mm. actually a place for the cyclist and, and the pedestrian to be walking. So that's one way of getting around needing to make a right-hand turn on a red. If there's a dedicated right turn lane, that's probably way safer and much easier to understand. It's trying to retrofit the older intersections mm. where people are used to making a right turn on a red and for the last 15 years, and now it's banned. And you have to make sure that they read the sign to understand it's banned because the person who's reading the sign stops and the guy behind honking the horn and two or three cars behind her honking the yeah. horn. And then maybe yeah. the next week you find out that it isn't banned all the time. Now it's only banned Monday to Friday, nine to five. You have to check your watch and the guy behind's checking his watch or the guy behind doesn't know it's Saturday and you can go through education. When it's all said and done, most people just want to get home safely. And they don't and normally want to run over someone else. It's just, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't understand. I'm hungry. I'm hangry. I'm grumpy. Angelo DeChico with us, done. Special Project good. Manager with the Ontario Safety League. The big debate over right, tur- uh, right turns on red lights. And again, if you just stop, everything will be fine. Angelo, thanks for the time. Be safe. Everyone. Enjoy the day. All right. Uh, when uh, I was at a station called Y95, uh, we used to do a thing at Yuck Yuck's Comedy Club, uh, which was uh, right in downtown Hamilton off of John, I believe it was. And uh, Donnie Coy was the MC there and a very, very funny man and very funny comedian and, you know, did the circuit, blah, 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 blah. And, and I'll never forget we used to do this, uh, I think it was like every Tuesday night or so. Anyway, including one of the people who we judged one. One night was Russell Peters, who, of course, went on to huge fame and fortune and Las Vegas and all of that stuff. So uh, a very, very funny man, a true Hamiltonian. And we got word that he had passed away. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about him. Patrick Coppolino is with us, manager of Levity Comedy Club, 120 King Street West in Hamilton. And with us now, Patrick, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you. You as well. So uh, obviously a sad, uh, a sad time. What can you tell us? Your thoughts, your memories of Donnie? Uh, what can you share with us? Uh, so Donnie's always been a legend in Hamilton comedy. Uh, he's quite older than myself. So when I started doing stand-up, uh, it was impossible to meet anybody that didn't mention Donnie's name when they found yeah. out you're doing stand-up. And uh, you know, we heard all the legends that he owned the original Hamilton Yuck Yucks Club, uh, and he was frequently on stage there um and then i got to meet him really shortly after i started and then through him you get to hear all the great stories like he was around for all like the big names in comedy now that came from from canada like norm mcdonald he remembers like a young jim carrey yeah Um, yeah so he's he's definitely been around the block and has done it all so he's uh, very well respected among the hamilton comedy community and uh he's frequently referred to as the godfather of hamilton comedy so uh he's a lot to all of us and yeah, I know he would give a lot of advice, and even I think for a period of time ran some workshops and such. What, what sort of advice would a Donnie Coy give you? Uh, honestly, the, the, the advice I remember the most was uh, get a car. <laughs> car. You'll get more gigs. <laughs> if you don't have tra- if you don't have transportation, life's going to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, well, and you get to work with uh, the headliners will want to work with you early on if you have a vehicle to get them to the gig. So that's how I got to work with Donnie early on. <laughs> there and, you uh, go. So even chauffeur. even better yet, if you can be his chauffeur, what the heck? So how did how did your how did you first encounter him? How did that happen? 
I was introduced to him through a mutual friend of ours, another Hamilton comedian who's been around for a long time, Manola Zantanos. Uh, he was, Donnie was a bit of a mentor to him. So uh, Manola quickly became a mentor to me when I started. And uh, he introduced me to Donnie, who was running a, uh, an open mic night at the Hooters on uh, Upper James mm. about 13 years ago. Um, and that's uh, one of the first stages I ever did was, was on Donnie's show. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember a long time ago when they used to do amateur nights at uh, Yak Yaks, which was always pretty cool to watch because there were some that were really, really, you know, had promise and others that were just thought they were funny. And it it must be nerve wracking to do that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did uh, in the back of the room. What about some of the stories uh, you heard over the years, some of the shoulders he rubbed a celebrity with? Uh, Well, uh, here at Levity Comedy Club, we have uh, a big blown-up photo of Donnie. It's one of his favorite pictures that he gave us uh, on his 70th birthday. Uh, we did the show here, and uh, it's of him and uh, John Travolta. Yeah. And uh, so that one, that, that's a great photo. It's a, he has a great story about that. Um, but yeah, like I said, he just he has a lot of stories about helping out guys that were starting out that, that ended up hitting it really big. Uh, like Norm MacDonald, of course, Russell Peters, like you mentioned. Uh, what are the what about the state of comedy? Because I remember uh, back then w- and during that era, I mean, it was like the comedy clubs were exploding. They were going up everywhere. There was brick walls everywhere, and a stage in front, and a microphone and such. Uh, what about the health now, and and especially coming off a pandemic when people need a little levity, as you might say? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's definitely it was slowing down a bit. It seemed, and uh, oddly enough, the pandemic almost helped. Because people were stuck inside, uh, a lot of people got turned on to stand-up comedy on Netflix, and then as soon as things opened up, they were just dying for some live entertainment. So it feels like it's coming back and getting getting busier again. All right, give Levity Comedy Club a bit of a plug. What do you got coming up? Uh, well, we've got a lot of great shows every weekend. Go to levitycomedyclub.com, uh, and every Wednesdays are amateur night, which is a lot of fun. So there's a show tonight. If anyone's listening in Hamilton, uh, it's always a good time. And uh, we're actually going to be doing a celebration of life for Donnie on Sunday, uh, October 22nd. And it's just free for anyone who wants to come share some stories, hear some stories, and then uh, just have a good time in the memory uh, of Donnie. All right. Look up Levity Comedy Club online and get all the details for that. 120 King Street West in Hamilton. Patrick Coppolino with his manager of Levity Comedy Club at 120 King Street West. Patrick, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Remember a while ago we were talking about the bomb threats that were sent to a couple of different Hamilton area schools. Uh, Nora Henderson High was one of them. Um, and, and and this was in around a controversy around uh, a teacher there. There is no controversy anymore. There is no problem anymore. Uh, so it was kind of unusual that th- th- this would start up again uh, from last year, where it was obviously an issue at Oakville Trafalgar High School. Uh, we heard a, a couple of weeks ago that there was a 13-year-old that was charged in relation to one of these. Um, but that is what they're probably calling a copycat. Here is Stunning news. 16 of the bomb threats that were sent to Hamilton schools in recent weeks may not have come from Hamiltonians at all, or even in the province, or even in the country, but instead from another part of the world. Offshore. 
Think about that. So someone picks up on a story, uh, trying to create some divisiveness. And then the next thing you know, hackers from around the world, who knows where it's from, whether it's um, Russia, whether it's China, who knows, Uh, but trying to create divisiveness. And boom, here it comes. So here we are, you know, a lot of locals thinking, oh, this is just real wacky right wing extremist extremism. No, this is interference. This is interference in Canadian life, very similar to the allegations of election interference with the Chinese Communist Party for the last two elections. This puts a completely different spin on this argument, I believe. Let's bring in Sean Sparling, uh, currently the president of Investigative Solutions Network and retired deputy police chief of Sioux St. Marie Police and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Here I am. Thank you for having me. Sean, are you surprised that you heard uh, hearing this information that the threats around, because again, this was an, an issue that pretty much had resolved itself, uh, that this was st- starting up again in Hamilton, and all of a sudden we find out, no, it's not uh, local wacky people. This is coming, this is uh, something that's coming offshore. Does that surprise you at all? Yeah, I, unfortunately, no, it doesn't. Uh, this is uh, becoming more commonplace. And it's, it's not just now, it's been common for a number of years to have uh, these uh, foreign folks online engaging this behavior, um, and it's just not uncommon anymore. I guess what's surprising about this, Sean, is it was seemingly a local story. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're getting uh, offshore uh, bomb threats like this. It, 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 was, it seems fascinating that somebody in another part of the world would even be interested in this. Yeah, nothing's truly local anymore. Especially, uh, like I saw the same story, and I'm in Sault Ste. Marie, and it was uh, carried on the uh, on the internet media. So anybody could see this around the world. And plus, you have these different groups in there that are very polarized these days, and they pick up these anti-LGBTQ type uh, things, right. and they run they run with it. So it, it certainly uh, gets an international flavor very quickly. What can you do for this? I mean, as soon as it, uh, you know, you, you get the feeling as soon as you hear the words offshore that um, then not much can be done from this. Is that accurate? Well, it comes down to uh, v- vigilance and training and preventative measures. And it's really about preventing this or trying to mitigate the impact that it has. The uh, the, the, the truth is that for the most part, uh, they're not going to be able to investigate this to come to any kind of criminal conclusion. Um, and it won't just it, it won't get the priority in order to uh, to get that kind of resources put into it. So it's not going to be solved likely. So you really have to work on the preventative side. And what do you do to prevent, Sean? Well, it's hard to prevent the actual uh, threat from coming in, but certainly how your um, uh, your posture is within the school. Instead of all of a sudden uh, uh, getting a bomb threat and emptying out the school, you may have some uh, some policies or procedures or inv- engaging professionals for threat risk assessments and whatnot uh, to an- analyze the actual likelihood of this uh, being a real bomb threat. And a lot of these are quickly determined that they're uh, they're fake and without much ac- action being taken. And that's how you actually prevent the impact of it. Initially, we had heard, uh, and I remember one of my cohorts saying, this sounds like a copycat, and they traced it to some 13-year-old kid that had called one in, uh, one of the many, um, which makes it even more confusing because other people jump on board of this. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So you have some uh, some local kid who jumped on, just like you said, and now he's probably being prosecuted for it. Again, not uncommon, uh, but uh, again, just through some uh, preventative practices or just how you're going to respond to these and actually exercising your response is really the only uh, tactics you have to, uh, to mitigate this. How does it change the investigation when it goes from something that's local at a local school and you're just assuming it's somebody local that's doing this and all of a sudden finding out that it's offshore? How does that change the investigation of the investigative process? 
Well, it, it certainly changes the uh, the level of risk. As soon as you uh, you determine that somebody offshore making a, a bomb threat like this, it really uh, lowers the the risk, and it's just a hoax or somebody uh, being mischievous. So, uh, and that will actually probably diminish the amount of effort you had that's going to go into this, and they're just going to return the the kids to school. It's uh, it's more a nuisance than anything else at that point. How important is it, Sean, that people know this information? That you know, because again, um, it happened, and then sometimes it, it falls off uh, public interest and such, and and many wondering whatever happened. Uh, but as you said, once you add the element of offshore, it does bring some sort of release uh, relief in the sense that th- there's less likely a chance that it, it it could mount to anything. It's important to get this information out. Yeah. So uh, again, like the. Uh, I'm glad to hear that the school and the authorities are actually communicating that this is offshore. So there's a good demonstration to the public that uh, what act exactly is going on. It's nice and transparent. Um, and it comes back to uh, within the school system um, of uh, having some sort of uh, process in, there, in place and actually communicating out to the students and staff. This is how we're going to handle these things in the future. So there's not no surprise and not a whole lot of anxiety involved. Sean Sparling with us, president of Investigative Solutions Network, retired deputy chief of police for Sault Ste. Marie. Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. Great. You too. Thank you. Bomb threats at those uh, local schools that we saw at the beginning of the school year, uh, not necessarily local wackos. No. Offshore interference. When are we going to start taking this stuff seriously? A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. History made in Manitoba last night as they elect the first First Nations premier. I said first indigenous premier and it's not. Okay, here's the details. Uh, 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 Wab Canoe, Manitoba's first, First Nations Premier, second Indigenous Premier after John Norquay. Maiti politician served as the province's fifth premier up until 1887. Uh, but you have to go back to then. So uh, either way, pretty historic day. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, and here now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Henry, how big a deal is this? Uh, I, I think it's important, uh, especially uh, when you have a candidate like um, they had yesterday in uh, Manitoba. Um, and, you know, it'll probably increase gra- greatly the uh, uh, participation of uh, um, First Nations people there in, in, in the uh, government and in society, and it's certainly turning out to vote. So I actually think uh, that's, that's going to have, a, you know, a, a very healthy uh, you know, uh, impact on the province. It was interesting. I was listening to the prime minister who congratulated uh, the premier. And obviously that happens whenever somebody wins, no matter what's your political stripe, Mm -hmm. but saying that there was another progressive premier, uh, meaning within uh, a cut from the same cloth, I guess, uh, even though they're from two political parties, Uh, is the NDP now becoming the choice or an alternative for those on the left once uh, the prime minister took the party uh, certainly farther left and center than than his, his previous uh, uh, predecessors, and and sort of cutting off the NDP at the at the uh, at the start. Is this is this a changing tide? Do you think that slowly the NDP is becoming the other alternative? Well, certainly the NDP is trying hard to do that, and we've had sparks of that. Well, if we look at the, you know, actually, if we look at um, Manitoba politics. Uh, it doesn't seem long to me, although it may be to other people, 
you know, 50 years ago, the, uh, the Liberal Party in Manitoba was a major party, and, uh, and with the Conservatives and the NDP was just a, a very minor party. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that has all changed now. The, the Liberal Party in Manitoba is reduced now to one seat. It hasn't had any you know, voice in government for 50 years. Um, but I don't think the people um, you know, 60, 70 years ago in Manitoba ever saw this coming. And uh, so, so that, that has been a change. And I think essentially most of the um, support that the NDP is getting in Manitoba now uh, are people who used to support the Liberal Party. So they were, when people get upset with the uh, you know voters who supported a Liberal Party, when they get upset, they have uh, they ha- they have you know basically three choices, and one of those choices is to leave the Liberal Party, you know, and then vote for the NDP. The other choice is, of course, if they're more conservative liberals or business liberals, as we often call them, they'll go over to the Conservative Party. Or if they're just confused and they don't know what to do, or they're unhappy with. Uh, the other two choices, they just may not vo- vote. So, it's um, it you know that 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 is happening. I think we we you know the certainly the NDP is very strong in British Columbia, um, and uh, it seems to be getting stronger and stronger in general. We saw in the Alberta government, even though the NDP didn't win the provincial election, it did very very well, and it's you know it's not too, you know it, it's not too far behind in seats with from the governing. Conservative Party, and so um, you know, you 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 could see that there is tends to be a a, a, tre- a trend going up. Now, some this we've seen some of this before, and then the NDP has fallen back. Mm-hmm. So there are waves uh, for the NDP, and just like and there are waves for the Liberals and the Conservatives, and uh, it all you know oftentimes depends on how people feel towards those three parties, and they you know some come into you know, fashion. And, you know, you certainly, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, the NDP was very, you know, relatively strong in uh, the Maritimes, which was mm-hmm. a surprise, but that's disappeared. Uh, but so pe- people come and go. But, you know, in our own province of Ontario, we can see the Liberal Party, you know, has had two very disastrous election, uh, elections provincially. And that's uh, something that uh, hasn't, you know, most most people didn't see coming. And and I quite frankly I will have to see for the next Ontario election, but I don't. I I think it's going to be very hard for the um, uh, Liberals to get ahead of the NDP again. The NDP has a number of seats that it really are in its corner, and it's going to be hard to dislodge those by the uh, by the Liberals. I think so. We'll see. But uh, you know I th- I don't. I, you know, you have this wave, and it does. You know, right now there is a bit of a, an NDP wave in the country. Obviously, you got to decide, uh, differentiate between provincial and and federal, but branding is branding. Um, uh, do you think? And we've asked many times whether for, uh, federally, if the merger with the NDP and the Liberals or their their deal uh, was worth it for the NDP. Uh, many have said no. Uh, Jagmeet Singh's calendar faltered with that. But that being said, it, it seems to have promoted the brand. Yeah, well, in the past, you know, the, the NDP has lost support after it's supported the Liberals, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's actually going to happen in the future. It's mm-hmm. hard to tell um, uh, what's going to happen. I mean, certainly, let's assume, because, the, and I would assume it, because the Liberals have been in for quite a while up federally, that people are getting sort of a bit tired of them. And so, especially the, so the Liberal voters have a, 
have a choice. Uh, they can go stay with the uh, the liberals, but they're of which they're t- getting sort of tired of, and they may not vote as as such high rates, or they may oftentimes the number of them will go to the NDP, and a number of them will go to the uh, Conservative Party. So it's um, you know I think I think I think the NDP you know parties and their leaders are in a pretty good position right now because there is. You know, there is in a number of places the liberals are, you know, not as strong as they were. And, pe- you know, people aren't as interested in the party as, as they once were. Well, we certainly both federally and provincially, I think. And we certainly know where the polls have been of late. But, you know, I was listening to uh, Jugmeet Singh do a news conference today, and he was continuing on complaining about the obvious and da-da-da-da-da about grocery prices and how they were supposed to be coming down by Thanksgiving and all this sort of stuff. And And meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, well, if there's anybody who's close, who's close enough to change any of this, it is him. It is Jugmeet Singh. And as you're saying before, perhaps the tone is changing. When does the time come where they go, you know what? This is pulling us down. We're going to break away from the liberals. We're going to go in on our own. We think we can be either the leader or the leader of the opposition. Well, certainly as they get closer and closer to the next election, you'll see that. I, I'm, I'm sure what, what, how well it will work for them is another question. But certainly, I think they they are going to break away from the Liberal Party and just say, you know, they'll probably come up and say, we tried and we tried all sorts of things, but they wouldn't listen to reason. So you have if you want real change, you'll have to vote for us. So I I expect we'll have that type of sentiment, you know, getting closer to the next election. But but they're certainly not ready for an election now. And that's why, you know, they they're they're you know, they're they're willing to criticize their partners, but they're not willing to really break with them. Why not? Because you will need a certain amount of runway to reestablish yourself before that election. So um, it, it seems the popularity for the prime minister can't get much lower, although perhaps it can if you keep hanging in there. Um, but So at, at what point does he find that sweet spot? Well, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting is, I mean, with the lack of, uh, you know, uh, weakness in the liberal uh, support uh, and particularly for the prime minister, there may come a point, you know, uh, say by next March, where the prime minister says, you know, I think I better just leave. You know, we, mm. for example, in, you know, in Manitoba, the previous uh, pr- progressive conservative uh, uh, premier, uh, uh, Pallister, Mr. Pallister, he, he after five years, he, he could see the writing on the wall and he left two years ago. Mm. And uh, so and after, from that point onwards, the public opinion polls went against the PCs there. So, you know, the same. So that may happen to the uh, to uh, Justin Trudeau. I mean, Mulroney could see the writing on the road, or, or, road and, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. coming up. So he uh, he left. So, you know, I I don't know whether, uh, you know, the, our prime minister currently is going to put up, well, you know, living with, uh, you know, numbers is as bad as they are now. And if. This keeps going, as I say. I would think by next August, uh, next uh, uh, sorry March, if we got, if he's uh, he's if he's still down and going down or staying there, and he if he sees that you know there's no way to bring the party back up, you know, he may just say, well, it's time for me to go. I don't want to. I don't want to be a losing you know a losing prime minister. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about all things Canadian politics. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you. 
You know what? It must be the season to change the Speaker of the House, because not only did we do it here, the United States virtually did it at the same time. Look at us walk in in step here. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, doing well. It's the heat's killing me, brother, but otherwise we're good. <laughs> so uh, did your speaker bring a Nazi into the house, too? How did he get kicked out? <laughs> he got kicked out because he actually tried to work with the Democrats, and that <laughs> hacked off some of the minor members of his party uh, to try and keep you know the government open. He struck a deal for 45 days to keep funding the government, and the far right didn't like that. Because he had to reach across and get, uh, you know, uh, Democrats to help him out. So they kicked him to the curb. And now it's anybody's guess who's going to be the next speaker. Uh, does this show more of divisiveness within the Republican Party uh, than it does uh, with a concern over the speaker? Yeah, I mean, the, the Republican Party at this point, look, if I walked into Congress and I was there most of the day today and yesterday, if I walked into Congress tomorrow and I saw a congressman running down the hall, with his suit on fire, his hair on fire, and somebody chasing him with a, a machete, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's it's a bad cartoon. I, I'm, I'm just waiting for, you know, uh, the Rocky the front Flying Squirrel to make it all complete. Uh, this was an advantage for the Republicans, having their speaker and such, and then using the Dems to, to get rid of him. So what is their next move? Well, they want someone who won't deal with the Democrats. They want someone who's going to do everything that the far right wants. And if not, they want to be able to get rid of him. And that was the deal that Kevin McCarthy struck to be the uh, speaker. And he thought he could control the far right and he couldn't. No one can. So the next person that comes in is going to have as as large of a problem. And unless, of course, it's Donald Trump, which so far, the only three people that have been talked about about being the new speaker are Jim Jordan uh donald trump and uh scalise so if any of them they're far right if any of them come in there won't be a problem from the far right they'll just be a problem from everyone else the moderates and Mm. and the conservatives will not like you know anybody that comes in if it's those three so it's just a circus on unending and it will be for the next week or so easily uh, the whole Donald Trump connection, that's just got to be another way to raise money. Is I mean, could he possibly end up the speaker? He could if they voted him. But, you know, he already said he doesn't want the job. There are better people for it. Donald Trump's an idiot, but he's not so dumb. He doesn't know that he's an idiot. So he knows he couldn't do that job and he doesn't want it. Will they vote him in? I mean, you're talking about people in our government like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. You know, they get caught vaping and, and uh, you know, soft porn in movie theaters so i don't know that that if they decided they didn't want him they wouldn't vote him in all right let's move to trump and the trials that he's uh involved with the trial he's involved with, with right now many surprised to see him appear three days in a row how come he's not there before he's here now because he wanted a campaign stop everything with tawny is all about grifting and money so he'll show up when he wants to how he wants to and on his terms And right now he needs money and he needs people to push for him. And so he shows up at those opportune moments. He's going to have the gag order is going to influence him uh, greatly. He's afraid of that. He's afraid of the prosecution in the other cases. So Donald's showing up, if nothing else, just to keep from wetting himself.
Uh, you made a comment about uh, what he's been saying uh, outside of court and uh, makes his his thoughts known, certainly about the judge, maybe even staff there and such. The judge trying to put a muzzle on him. Does that work? Will that work? Has anybody ever been able to muzzle Donald? I don't think so. That's my point. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's going to work. I think that at some point in the time, the judge is going to say, look, do I jail him for being a big mouth or do I let it go? And he'll push it to the very limit. And at some point in time, he could face or he'll end up being fined or being, you know, levied a heavy fine. But I don't think he'll go to jail and I don't think they'll be able to shut him up. Donald Trump is he suffers from diarrhea of the mouth and there's no cure for it. Is this the beginning of the end? Oh, I think the end. uh, No, this is the. uh, this is the end of the beginning. I think that uh, <laughs> Donald Trump is the, the next act is is following and he'll be on this one for several years. I don't think he'll be back in office. I don't think he'll be on the, the ballot next year. And I think these uh, trials are going to keep him wrapped up for at least the next three or four years. And he'll stay out in front trying to grift the entire time. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist and author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN. The life in the U.S. Speaker of the House, right to Donald Trump. It's all there in seven minutes or so. Brian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, my brother. Always a pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CNN. All right. You know, uh, one of the the issues about being in the media and, and trying to help in the community and, and do whatever is stuff gets lost in the sauce. And as we move forward, stories change. Uh, the news of the day changes uh, a lot of the time before any of these stories are even uh, rectified or anything changes or, or what have you. And this is one of those stories. The GFL landfill in Stony Creek continues uh, to torment its neighbors. Uh, everybody says they're doing what they can, but what gets lost in all of this stuff is that day in, day out, hour in, hour out, people who are just trying to live their lives uh, get caught up in the middle of something which is unbearable in some scenarios. Uh, so let's bring Kathleen back to the show. Uh, lives near the GFL landfill in Stony Creek. Uh, has been active on social media as well. Kathleen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? So far, so good. What does it smell like today, Kathleen? That's my first question I always ask you. Near me, I'm I'm doing good today. Um, I know that the people around the dump have said that it is quite strong today, um, but it's uh, I, I'm lucky enough that I actually have some days here and there that I can breathe. <laughs> you talked before about how the temperature changes this, and you and you said worse at night when it gets cooler. So has the heat been an issue? Um, not again, not for me. Um, I don't understand the the temperature thing. We were told this when we were confused as to why it suddenly switched to being a nighttime issue. Um, The Ministry of Environment representative we saw, Stephen Burt, told us that apparently this is, it it happens with the cool air. It kind of carries the smell more, which is why Mm. I'm concerned about winter. Um, But we've also realized that they're doing work over there at the dump throughout the night. Right. Um, so I'm thinking that that's probably that's probably more what's causing it, because that's when they're apparently trucking out the leachate. So that's I what I'm that's wondering. You know, that's what I was wondering when you we were talking last time and you said that it seems to be worse at night. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, is it really about the temperature or is that they're doing stuff that, you know, if you did mm-hmm. it during the day, it would be really bad. 
Right. I mean, entirely possible. Um, It it might be worse during the day if they were doing it during the day. Um, But I do think that that's probably contributing to the excess smell at night. So is this just something you have to live with now? I mean, everybody knows about it. Nothing seems to be able to be done. Uh, But what do you what do you where do you go from here? Well, I personally won't live with it. I'll move. Um, I know that there are people who have already talked about putting their houses up for sale. I actually spoke with a gentleman yesterday um, as I was going around with the petition. He's been in the area for almost 40 years, and he said he just can't do it anymore. He's putting his house up for sale, and he's leaving. Um, You know, we have an aging population in some of these houses, and this is simply not okay for them to be breathing. Are you uh, you worried that you may not get what you want for your home just because of that, not because of where you are or the house or anything, but because of this story? There is a lot of concern about property value. Um, I mean, I think that it's going to have to be a, a what is more important for a lot of people, their health mm. or, or the money, um, which is an incredibly horrible thing to have to say. Um, yeah, but that's really. the point that people are getting to. Um, so, uh, so clearly, although there is work being done and we've talked about this before, they haven't given you a finished date or when any sort of target as to when it may get better for you. Um, we actually heard from Donna Skelly last week. Um, one of our members of our Facebook group had reached out to her and she actually responded, um, and told them that This past weekend, GSL had received a foam from the United States that would be being used, and that was supposed to stop the smell. So midweek, here we are, and it hasn't done any good. Uh, uh, Any idea if that's been done, if the foam is there? or (laughs) Apparently, they received it already. It was coming in from the United States. Um, So I'm, I'm hoping that they would have at least tried it by now. If they haven't, then maybe they could get on that. And if they have, it's just not working. So it was interesting seeing some social media on this. There's no shortage of stories or people who want to share their thoughts with you. Oh, no, not at all. We have our, our Facebook group has grown about about 800 people in the last two weeks. Um, and as it's as people are finding out about it, they're they're coming more and more. And uh, the stories that we're hearing are, are horrible. Um, there was a woman who told me that she doesn't have air conditioning. And so, Mm. you know, normally she has her windows open and she has fans going. So this year it's been a choice between sweltering in her closed up house or having that stink coming in. That's not okay. Hmm. What, uh, when's the trigger for you? When do you, all right, that's it. What is, what's the future? I don't know. I I really don't know. You know, what a horrible, what a horrible position to be in. And you know what I don't understand, Scott? I don't understand why, if this is a leachate problem, because they essentially lost control of it, it became overwhelming, and they're trying to get it out of there. If that is truly the problem, why do they continue to operate during the day and take in more and more and more garbage? Is that not going to create more leachate? That's going to create more smell because they can't handle it? Why is the government not stepping in and saying, you shut down until you fix this? And what did Donna Skelly say about that? She hasn't responded to me at all. Um, the only one I really hear back from ever is Brad Clark. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, his efforts, as far as I'm concerned, have been minimal, but at least they're there, right? I don't understand why it's taking so long to get some of these things done. 
but at least he is making an effort. Donna Skelly has done absolutely nothing. Um, it's it's frustrating, really. And what about and what about GFL? Have you heard anything from them from the company? Are there is there any goodwill there? Obviously, uh, no, we'll we'll try to get them on, but phone calls. Sorry. No, we'll try to get them on, but what have they said to you? They they respond to some phone calls when you call. They say that they'll have someone go over and check out the smell. Um, <laughs> what good is that doing? <laughs> I'm going to drive by in my truck, and I'm going to roll down the window and go, yeah, it stinks. What do we do now? I mean, yeah. man, oh, man, I just can't, I can't imagine what you're going through on a, on a daily basis there. All right, Kathleen, we'll, we'll reach out to GFL, see what we can get, and, and, and try to help on this end. But keep us abreast of what's going on, and uh, we'll go from there. Good luck. Will do. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm uh, going to bring in Carmi Levy again, technology analyst and journalist, talk about artificial intelligence. And as this often happens, as soon as we find a story, you know, oh, let's bring in Carmi to talk about this. And then all of a sudden, there's like two or three other stories that jump ahead of it. So, Carmi, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, but I'm going to T-bone you with some stuff you probably didn't expect to talk about. <laughs> but I know you're nimble on your feet and you can react to all of this. Uh, first of all, since we're talking about AI, uh, Tom Hanks coming out and saying, hey, watch for a, I think it's a dental plan commercial involving me. It ain't me. It's fake. Uh, another example of. Yeah, this is this is happening frequently. Uh, you know, basically, Tom Hanks is out there. If you want to see his likeness, if you want to see videos of him, it's available online. And so what scammers are doing is they are grabbing that footage and they're using it to train artificial intelligence to create new deep fakes, basically putting words in his mouth. It looks like a video of Tom Hanks, but it's AI generated and they're using it to sell all sorts of stuff. In this case, a dental plan. Uh, at the same time, there was a CBS anchor, Gail King. Apparently, she's showing for weight loss uh, mm. plans when you know she wasn't even aware of it. So this is it's it's epidemic. It's getting worse uh, because the tools to create these deep fakes are increasingly available to anyone, and scammers are jumping onto this very quickly. Uh, which basically means if you see it on social media or you see it online, uh, don't assume that it's legit. Uh, it probably isn't, uh, and you don't click on that link because it may take it as something that you might not want to go to. I haven't seen the Tom Hanks thing. Can you tell as you watch it, Carmi, that it's fake or is it so good you can't tell? You have to lean in a little bit to these things. And it's good enough that it gets your attention. You're like, oh, that's Tom Hanks. But then you mm. sort of realize that the flow isn't quite there. He's a little bit staccato. It's it, Let's call it 99.99% there. There's just enough there, though, that if you're paying attention, uh, then you'll kind of know that something is, is amiss. And then, of course... There's just the logical Tom Hanks would not shill for a dental plan. That's well below <laughs> yeah. his brand. Yeah. So yes. you sort of have to put a whole bunch of things together. But you you know, Scott, and I know, we, we've talked about this how many times, that most people aren't paying that de degree of attention. They aren't leaning in. They're just kind of seeing it, and they don't lead with cynicism. So they're inclined to believe what they see, even if it's fake. And the problem here is that that's one problem. The secondary problem is the technology is improving very rapidly. So today it looks a little staccato. Today it looks a little bit mm, slightly not real when we lean in. Tomorrow, six months down the line, a few years down the line, it is going to be so insanely realistic. There's there's going to be no way for us to tell legit from non-legit video. That's where things get really scary. That was my next point was only a matter of time before technology is moving as quickly as it is, as it does catches up and, and is this is perfect. Then what happens? How do we prepare for that? Well, we, we do what we've done all along is that, you know, we, we, we don't take things at face value, even if they look 
real. And so we what we do is we pull back from the video itself. So yeah, the asset itself, the video will be very realistic. But what we'll do is then look to the source. Where did it come from? Can I find the original source? Is it a source I'm familiar with? Does it look like a link that I've seen before or that would be from a real organization? Take a look at those URLs. Take a look at who's sharing it. What does that look like? You can often tell just by the packaging that something comes in, even if it's a perfectly produced video, the packaging gives it away and no AI is ever going to fix that. We have to become better navigators of the internet. We've been pretty lousy navigators up until now and rendering us very easily fooled. If we took a little bit of time to be better investigators, we'd be less inclined to be fooled even as the technology continues to improve. You know what I'm scared about this, Carmi? It's not so much even with, you know, politicians have different words being put in their mouth or actors, different words being put in their mouth. What happens if something happens, for example, like a politician really does do something wrong and it does get caught on video? And then at what point or when is the time coming when someone can and they can stand back and say, well, that's not me. That's AI. Yeah, it opens the door for people to back away from egregious behavior. Uh, yeah, because now, it's a lie. now we know now we're now we no longer believe anything we see and hear. So, mm-hmm. well, of course, it, you, know, I, you know, and and we've we've seen that so many times over the past couple of years. How many times that you know someone shares something that is so off brand, so terrible that in the past it would have gotten them fired, canceled, voted out of office, whatever, and their first re- response is, "Oh, I was hacked." Right. Yeah. And so, no, really, like, that's just a, it's a lame excuse, but it's an easy way to kind of throw doubt on the entire platform. And that's probably what we're going to see as well, which is just going to put another wrench into the works. And it's just going to make it even harder for us to tell legit from not not legit. It's bad today. It's going to get worse. And, and our inability and let's face it, unwillingness to step up a little bit is only going to worsen an already bad situation. All right, let's talk about offshore interference. Uh, a local story here in Hamilton started in Oakville uh, regarding a teacher uh, who was not dressing, uh, who was dressing inappropriately. I don't want to get too much into the case. Uh, eventually, that teacher gets relocated to Hamilton. Everything is fine. There's no issues. Uh, school work, uh, continues on as it should. Then, all of a sudden, that school and a series of schools in Hamilton start getting bomb threats. And, of course, it's all related to this story and such. Uh, uh, Hamilton police announced last week that a 13-year-old uh, got arrested uh, for one of the incidents because they were a copycat. But now they're saying that the majority of these can be traced offshore. So while well, somebody thinks it's a wacko local right-winger doing extremist things and all, it's not. It's it's foreign interference coming from offshore, which is yeah. scary when you think of this as a local story. It is. Yeah. And the thing is, the story doesn't stop at the border. It became an international incident on social media, on the web. It became available around the world and it generated headlines around the world. So, of course, now you have opportunistic, malevolent, bad actors who are using it as an opportunity to now target uh, within Hamilton's borders. And that's kind of frightening because there are no borders on the Internet and it is easy for people to wreak havoc half a world away. And then to think that they can get away with it because, well, you know, the Internet's a global resource, but the cops can't get to me because they're not going to cross borders. Well, right now, law enforcement is saying that the the IP addresses of the perpetrators are hidden. They're having difficulty locating them. Uh, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game. But 
we know full well that law enforcement agencies are getting better at cooperating with each other across borders, internationally, globally, uh, and that it is only a matter of time before they can kind of break through those protections and find out where these messages were originating from. There is precedent in this right now. They're somewhat stymied, uh, but I would expect this case to con continue to evolve as they bring more resources in. So, you know, if you're thinking of being a copycat and wreaking havoc in another country because you think you're going to get away with it, uh, long long story short is the, the, the law has a very long arm. Eventually, they'll figure it out. These things can be traced. We all leave traces of our activities when we go online, even internationally. We always hear that the bad guys are one step ahead. That being said, can police, law enforcement, whatever security, use AI to help find these people? Is that possible? They, they absolutely can. I mean, if you think about, you know, if you think about finding a perpetrator half a world away is kind of like a needle in a haystack kind of search. Artificial intelligence is perfectly built for yeah. this kind of thing. It goes through huge data sets. It chews through them at a scale that regular humans simply can't. You, you can't have a, a police officer sit in a room and dig through a database. They'll never finish. You, you know, they'll, they'll be retired before the case is closed. Right. Uh, but you can certainly sick an AI bot on these things. And, and they're incredibly productive, incredibly powerful. So it's a matter of law enforcement agencies putting their heads together, cooperating across borders, and using these cutting-edge AI powered tools in this way to find those needles in haystacks to break uh, the encryption and break the IP shielding tools and technologies that perpetrators would use and essentially reach through those layers and find them where they are. It can be done. It's already being done. The question is, how well are we coordinating internationally to make that happen? We don't talk a lot, Carmi, about AI used to fight evil. Yeah, but it can be. And AI gets a lot of negative headlines for, yeah. for good reason when it's not properly controlled, when the right laws aren't in place to mitigate the risks. But let's be clear, when you take AI and you focus it on a very specific problem, it can do wonders. It can save lives. It can solve crimes. It can improve community outcomes. It can reduce poverty, You know, give people advantages where they otherwise were not. We will figure out that there is more good in AI than not good in the years to come. We just have to maintain that focus. I got to look into this more. I got to figure out how I can make the life of Scott Thompson easier. All right. Carmi Levy with his technology analyst and journalist talking about the ever-changing world of AI. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great finger, Scott. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Got a couple there now, including Ann Lauer, Not Sure Rebuild, First Ontario Center, has room for the Bulldog, Scott Radley, is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Can I, can I pull a, an audible on this one, Scott, for a second? Yeah, if you want. Can, sure. we, can we put that one off till tomorrow when I come on? Okay. Because, yeah, absolutely. Because something just happened in the Jays game, and I got to tell you, I really... Oh, they were, it was tied up there. What happened? Okay, so I, th this, to me, uh, like, I, I am pretty calm when it comes to watching teams. I've been around sports, <laughs> professional sports long enough. I don't get emotionally invested as much as I once did. I get that. Uh-oh. Uh However... I got to tell you, the the Blue Jays manager, John Schneider, if the Jays lose this game and the way things are going, I'm betting they're going to, should be fired before he gets back to the dugout at the end of this game, before the oh, clubhouse. Oh, man. See, you I got, just checked I just checked before I came, and it was like in the top of the fourth, and it was like tied 0-0. Yes, what happened? Yes. So you've got Jose Barrios, who is pitching an absolute gem. He is on his game. He, your starting pitcher, he is mowing guys down, has five strikeouts through three innings, absolutely light out today. But because of analytics, 
And because of some other stuff, they decide to make a switch to Kikuchi for, I mean, reasons that an actuarial will explain, but no baseball person would because it's insanity. <laughs> so they make the pitching change and promptly load the bases and give up two runs, and now they're down 2 nothing. It is the absolute worst part of modern baseball that you have insurance adjusters working as managers making decisions that are absolutely nonsensical, head-scratching brain pablum. And now the Jays, this is a must-win game. And you have decided to take out your guy who is on his game. Look, every time you go to the bullpen, you are rolling the dice because you don't know exactly what the next guy is going to come in with. He may be really on or he may Mm -hmm. be not on that day. You've got a guy that you know is going well. How in the world in a must-win game do you do this? I, I know there'll be all kinds of explanations with all kinds of words. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is, if, if the Jays don't come back and win this, I'm serious. John Schneider should be released before he gets to the clubhouse. This is the stupidest decision a manager can make. Stupid. So is, is this too much information, too much logistics, yes. too much yes. on paper? Over, overthinking and, yeah. and planning stuff out ahead of time. And then look, Scott, you, you, I don't care what, you're doing your show and something, ha- you've planned out your show ahead of time. But then all of a sudden something big breaking happens in the world and you change on the fly and you go, you know, we had a plan, but mm-hmm. now we have new information and people do this in every single job. We that just exists. did it. We just did it with the Blue Jays. All right. We just, we, yeah, you were going to talk about the, the Bulls. Yeah. Everybody in every job you think would come to work with a plan, but then if something happens that requires that plan to change, if you're any good at your job whatsoever, you're nimble enough to change and adjust and say, that is a good plan, but this is now a better plan because something has happened. This to me is being locked in and wedded to your idea without knowing what is going to happen. And it is stupid and it is ruining baseball. I swear to you, it is, this is not, this is not fun baseball to watch when you are having a guy who would be more successful sitting, working for an insurance company than in a baseball (laughs) uniform, making decisions. Isn't that technology though? You have it, you have to use it. I mean, I look at even my kids' high school football team. They have a day where they just watch film. You gotta be kidding me. No, but somebody actually taking pictures of this. Yeah, that, but that, so again, let's go to your football coach though. So let's say, so he has the information. Now let's say that he comes up with a game plan and discovers what we're doing is totally not working. Yeah. You then don't, does a decent coach not say, all right, this is not working. We're going to go and we're going to adjust. Audible. Yeah. This is idiocy. And if, and I, I swear I like people are going to be livid if the Blue Jays are eliminated today because this, and they are justifiably going to be this. And here's the problem. I'm not even sure as much as I think Schneider should be, I honestly believe he should be fired if they lose this game because of this kind of decision, except he won't. And the reason is because I'm quite positive the decision was discussed with his superiors, with the GM and the president. And this was probably arranged beforehand by the people above him, Mm. the whole organization apparently is now in this thing where we're going to go with the numbers, regardless of what the situation calls for. Imagine if any other job, you're a firefighter, you show up at a fire and you've learned at firefighters college, here's how you handle this. 
But then something mm. changes. You go, no, no, no. We came here with a plan. We're sticking with the plan. The neighborhood's on fire now. It doesn't matter. We're sticking <laughs> with the plan. This is what we came in with. It's idiocy, Scott. It's, I, I just, I can't, I, I'm so, I, I, I love baseball. I love the game. I hate this part of the game. It infuriates me that it's becoming this way. I feel the same way about the prime minister, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> Boy, you cannot take the sports out of the sports guy. Listen to the passion oh, coming it, it out it of this man's en- mouth when he's talking me. about sports. It enrages me. No, it's, and you know what? This would be, if we were watching the Atlanta Braves and the Milwaukee Brewers or whoever was playing, it would be the same thing. P- call the game. Play the game. Follow the game. Don't go by some sort of analytic thing to the point where you're wedded and can't break from it. Anyway, I'm happy to talk Bulldogs tomorrow. Let's let's make a, a schedule. Let's make a date to do that. <laughs> well, have a date tomorrow to do it. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. This one from Mr. Lowe. A thumbs up to the people of Manitoba who elected Wab Canoe, the first First Nations Premier of Manitoba. Sometimes a break from the status quo is needed for real change and progress forward. Mr. Lowe. Keep right except to pass. 